Hello friends, and welcome to The Final Threshold, a voice of those crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord and to make His pathway straight. Here at The Final Threshold, we proclaim the true message of the kingdom in preparation for Messiah's second coming events. My name is Chadwick Harvey, and I welcome you. Friends, today we have a very special guest, Daniel Seckham. He's the founding director and editor-in-chief of Israel, Islam, and End Times. He's also an international Bible teacher. He's going to be speaking about the relationship between the American left and Islam and how it affects biblical eschatology. Friends, as the culture war accelerates and intensifies within America's borders for its soul, we need to understand the historical patterns of other cultural wars to give us understanding of what we face today. So sit back and enjoy this imperative topic as Daniel unpacks it. Friends, at this moment, I'd like to bring our special guest on, Daniel Seckham. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm doing great. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you, Chad. Well, I really appreciate you joining us. And for the listeners, uh, Daniel is joining us from Australia, so he's across the world, and we've networked together for years, and uh, I keep up with what he's doing, and I think it's a very important topic, like I was mentioning in the introduction, about the relationship between America's left and Islam and how it affects eschatology. So we'd like to open with that in the summary of it, and we'd like to get your thoughts on on the topic, Daniel, and how that uh, kind of proceeds into the rest of the uh, dialogue. Yes, well, um, understanding America's left uh, is something that um, didn't really, you know, where America finds herself in the throes of the culture war right now, but it didn't happen overnight. In fact, I would say that the seeds of of rebellion in regard to that's what leftism is in, in regard to rebellion against God goes really all the way back to the 1950s. Um, and if you were to uh, cross the Atlantic into Europe, uh, it goes even further back to that. In fact, you'll probably um, originate originated with um, Karl Marx. Um, so, but um, basically, Karl Marx's vision, his doctrine of Marxism, um, was not. Uh, basically, it was um, the academics. Um, who ran with this and, and brought it to America, basically changed or tweaked is probably a better word. They tweaked Marx's version of um, Marxism and applied it to what we now know as cultural Marxism. See, Karl Marx's original vision was that he imagined that the 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 dictatorship of the proletariat, okay? Now, when I say the dictatorship of the proletariat, this is where the the have-nots get it over the haves. It's where they win. It's where they, basically they they stir up the feeling of envy within people, uh, like how dare they have, um, how dare they drive nice cars, how dare they have nice houses, how dare they be better off than me. And basically, he rubbed the, the sore of, agit, of um, 
agitation. He rubbed the soul red. He was an agitator. And basically, uh, his goal was to get these people who are the uh, proletariats to rise up against the bourgeoisie. Okay, now the bourgeoisie, these were the top hat wearing wealthy business owners, the owners of companies, the owners of, you know, and so he thought that he could get this revolution through class warfare where the downtrodden workers would rise up. This is where you get that famous saying, workers of the world unite. Okay, that's attributed to Karl Marx out of his book, The Communist Manifesto. So, uh, but what happened was is that when World War II came along in 1914 is that the workers of the world didn't fight for their classes. They fought for their countries. And that dealt a huge blow uh, to the followers of Marx who had died uh, in 1888, um, approximately 40 years earlier, sorry, um, 30 years earlier. So they, that dealt a huge blow to the whole concept of Marxism. But then there were others who said, well, no, you know, Marx is still right. He just didn't, he just didn't get all the details right. And this is where a, a guy called Antonio Gramsci comes in. Now, Antonio Gramsci was an Italian communist. Um, and he basically lived in the days of um, Mussolini in the early days of Mussolini. In fact, he had a run-in with Mussolini. In fact, he uh, Mussolini threw him into prison because I think Mussolini saw him as a bit of a threat. And so while he was in prison, he wrote the prison notebooks, which is a series of, um, of writings. But basically what Gramsci did is that he took the philosophy of Marx and he changed it. So he took the main thing about Marx is that, yes, there needs to be, it's the haves versus the have-nots, you know. It's the people who don't, it's the people, it's the oppressed versus the oppressor. But Gramsci said that um, it's not going to happen through class warfare. Gramsci um, basically posited that it could only happen through culture, which I think was probably the wisest well, it was a masterstroke by Gramsci to come up with that because, let's be honest, people aren't going to die for their class, but they will die for aspects of their of culture, especially if that is woven into their identity. Now, that might actually make sense to you as I as I begin as I continue to unpack this. So, Gramsci was the father of cultural Marxism. Now, after Gramsci came along a guy called Gordy Lukács, who was a Hungarian uh, communist, and he basically took it further and said, listen, if we're going to identify anyone who's our number one target, it's the Christians. It's Christianity. We have to smash Christianity for us to get our socialist revolution. And so basically he believed that the way to, um, to win was to capture the youth Okay, get this, to capture the, the youth and to get them hooked on sexual perversions. He said if you can completely uh, deprave the youth and uh, destroy their moral compass and to get, the <clears throat> and to get them involved in every uh, perverted practice imaginable, 
you will succeed in completely uprooting the Christian moral um, uh, anchor. You'll completely uproot the Christian moral anchor. That was his strategy. Then after, and then uh, Gordy Lukacs linked up with a guy called um, Felix Will. He was a, the son of a rich banker, and uh, basically he they founded the Frankfurt School, uh, which was out of Gerhardt University in uh, the German city of Frankfurt. Now, um, the out of that particular school, this was the very first school, by the way, that focused on Marxist philosophy. Um, so they had the, the, it was headed up. The principal was called Max Horkheimer, um, and some of the the, the um, acad- um, alumni that went through there with people such as Theodore Adorno, Eric Fromm, and of course the most famous one of them all, Herbert Marcuse. The, uh, now what happened was is that when Hitler came to power, he basically persecuted um, the, the Jews through every aspect of society, including academia. And because the majority of the academics from the Frankfurt School were of Jewish descent, they applied for academic, um, they basically applied for academic asylum. And guess where they went to? They went to the United States. So they applied for academic asylum, and from Adorno, uh, and Bakuza, for the most part, they all arrived in, in Columbia University in New York. Uh, and then Bakuza picked up a, a job within FDR's war ministry, basically the, um, the, minist- the ministry for information or propaganda per se. So basically he was involved in coming up with idea, uh, ideas and how he, you can actually push, uh, encourage people to join the war effort. That's what Makuza was in. But then he left there, and then he went from university to university, from Brandeis, uh, I think I think Brown, and then eventually he found himself in San Diego University, which is where he retired. But Makuza was very, very smart. Um, he basically built upon um, uh, Gramsci's writings. He built upon Lukacs's writings, and he was a, a very... The only way for me to describe him is that he was an evil man. Uh, he wrote a book called Eros and Civilization where he believed that man is not truly liberated until he is sexually liberated. Um, and so he was probably one of the very key figures in what launched the sexual revolution. In fact, you've probably heard of the term make love, not war. Well, that was Herbert Mercuse who came up with that. Herbert Mercuse came up with the term make love, not war. He also came up with the term, if it feels good, do it. So he really, he basically joined up with a lot of other cult, uh, counterculture figures in the 1960s. And um, in fact, a lot of the um, artists who performed at Woodstock were actually involved with Makuza. And so he was the academic brains behind the sexual revolution, which caused un believable amount of damage uh i mean the sexual revolution went on through the 60s into the 70s which then led to the infamous supreme court decision in 1973 which was roe versus wade because you had with the explosion of the sexual revolution there was all these teenage girls getting pregnant and uh they had you know there was a, a, a 
basically all these teenage girls with all these unwanted pregnancies and of course you know it was it, the wages of sin is death and in this case the death is literal with the death of millions of unborn babies and so this was basically the beginning from what we saw um, of the counterculture movement that we saw in the 1960s and uh, in the 70s. But here's the thing, Chad, and this is what's interesting, is that many of the college radicals that were part of the left in the 1960s and the 1970s, these are the ones who were protesting Vietnam and were doing what they could to sabotage the war effort, but what has happened is, is that these college radicals eventually have become today's tenured professors. Think about that. So the same rage that they carried in their activism in the, as they were college students, they now direct that brainwashing uh, impressionable young American students who enter into college. And this is one of the mistakes that um, that many a parent makes is that they assume they assume that the college that they went to when they were a kid is exactly the same as the college that they're sending their children to, and of course it's not. In fact, the colleges are absolutely crawling with uh, um, Marxist ideologues. In fact, it's it's a, a major, major, major problem at the moment. In fact, Dinesh D'Souza uh, said there are more Marxists on the faculties of our elite colleges than there are in all of Europe, all of sorry, all of Russia and all of Eastern Europe. Wow, incredible, isn't it? I mean, that is that's to the point. Yeah, I mean, it's just. It's now got to the point where the left have completely captured the education system. And of course, this is what they wanted all along. You know, it was um, Vladimir Lenin who said, give me four years with the children and the seeds that I have sown shall never be uprooted. Wow. That is totally incredible, and I really appreciate I'm sure the listeners are. We have to understand the historical, the history of Marxism that has just evolved from what you've given us, and we really appreciate that uh, historical references and the progression uh, of the evolution that comes to America because we have to understand uh, what certain ideals are that are being implemented, have been implemented, and I love the tie-in. Uh, with the cultural war, the sexual cultural war that exploded in the 60s and 70s, and then we have the yep. radicals or the activists that are in our uh, college systems and things like that. So uh, the question I think the listeners would have now is how does that tie in this Marxism evolution? How does that tie into uh, our topic of Islam and the left, uh, if you can expound on that? Okay. Now, what happens is is that this... See, the whole thing with leftism is really a disease of the heart. It, it really is a disease of the heart. It's where basically the um, uh, basically it's the sorry. I'm just going to deal with my dog. My dog's destroying something. <laughs> Come here. Get down. Yeah. So basically, with Marxism, it's it it, it is a disease of the heart. It is when envy completely captures somebody 
and um, and and really, it's when they become a slave to the um, the poison that has that that's in their heart. That's the only real way of of trying to describe that. Um, I think it was Henry Hazlitt who said that. Um, and I'll just see if I can find that here. Um, um, yeah, so basically, it's it's where they it's where they see someone who has got their life together, and basically they say it isn't fair that they should have all these things and not me. It really goes down to those three words. It isn't fair you know why them and not me so we and envy is really i would say at the the very heart of this and so and this is what social justice is all about social justice is not about justice at all social justice is all about revenge and um and really you know someone said to me um someone i think it was a preacher said to this years ago and they said that hurting people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. And I thought, wow, that is so true. And it pretty much sums up Marxism. I mean, these people are hurt and they are enraged and they are out for revenge. And this is really what social um, justice is. It's revenge. It's They say that they they are all about bringing the, the people, the uh, disadvantaged people up to their level, but that's not what they're they're about. They want to bring down all the tall poppies. Okay, this is why they hate it when people do better than. This is why they hate millionaires. This is why they hate you know um, billionaire entrepreneurs. This is why they this is why they hate the United States. See, from a from a national nationalist perspective. They hate American exceptionalism. Why? Because America stands head and shoulders above every other nation because they are the most successful. And the left hate that. They absolutely hate that. Now, let me sort of unpack this um, for you a little bit better here. For example, um, so what they've done, um, they, they focus on a thing called critical, critical theory. Now, critical theory came out of the Frankfurt School and basically, it says that any norm within society should be challenged and therefore altered. Now, as I explained earlier, whereas traditional Marxism sought to encourage conflict between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the haves versus the have-nots, cultural Marxism seeks to encourage conflict between the oppressed and the oppressor, those with privilege and those without it. So the working class has been replaced by minorities. Now... So heterosexuality is deemed as as oppressive. Therefore, the answer is other diverse forms of sexuality. White people are deemed as oppressive. Therefore, the answer is racial diversity. American or Western culture is deemed as oppressive. Therefore, the answer is multiculturalism. Now, cisgender people, and by the way, cisgender was a new word, new word <laughs> to me. <laughs> where you know, cisgender basically is someone who knows that is a man who knows that they are a man who who is sure about their gender. Okay, so 
where, but it says that cisgender people are deemed as oppressive, therefore the answer is transgenderism. Israel is deemed as oppressive, therefore the answer is Palestine. Christians are deemed as oppressive, therefore the answer is to propagate Islam. That really is what it is in a nutshell, because Islam is the perfect vehicle for the left, which they will use to smash Christianity. Now, from a cursory, cursory glance, you would think the layman would, would say that Christianity and Islam, sorry, um, the left and Islam have nothing in common. In fact, they would be mortal enemies. Um, but in reality, they have a, an enormous amount in common with each other. Um, in fact, they both, and here's the, here is the philosophy which they both share. This is the number one thing that they both share. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That is the very thing that galvanizes the left and Islam together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And who is the enemy, according to the left and to Islam? It's Christianity. They both hate Christianity. Therefore, they will unite with each other in their effort to destroy Christianity because they both know that Christianity is at the heart of Western civilization. It's at the heart of America. You know, it's, it's at the heart of your founding documents in the your constitution and your bill of rights and your declaration of independence it's you know it's christianity is what underpins your nation and this is what um uh, this is where you get all these wonderful rights that you that you get to enjoy your right to private property you know your your right to to bear arms you know your your right to freedom of speech your right to freedom of re religion Okay, but see, and all those things are an, are an anathema to the left. You know, the left hates free speech because they want to control and they can't control the people if, if people have freedom of speech. You know, and so same thing with Islam, uh, with Islam. Islam wants to control as well. See, both the left and Islam are both totalitarian ideologies. In fact, they're both, and the other thing that they share is that they're both utopian as well in fact let me just quickly uh just run down just a bunch of this is just a bunch of observations that i've made in regard to these common values that they both share first of all they're both utopian okay the left and islam are totalitarian in nature okay both appeal to the victim mentality both share the ideal that their belief system cannot be challenged okay both oppose freedom of speech both have no problem in using violence to achieve their objectives. Both use lies and deception to achieve their greater goal. Both are working toward a future revolution. Okay, so the left want their socialist revolution. And Islam, well, we know what Islam want. They want to declare a caliphate and they want to transition a nation from Da'al Hab, House of War, over to Da'al Islam, which means House of Islam and to bring it under Sharia. That's what they both want to do. Both use lies and deception to achieve their greater goal. Now we know 
that the left have would have absolutely no problem in lying uh, to to um, to bring about that goal. In fact, what's interesting is that um, uh, one a, a gr- fantastic ad- academic uh, who used to be a hardcore communist in America, but is now a conservative, is a man called David Horowitz. And he said, if you believe that around the corner is health care for all, food for all, shelter for all, and, and on and on, then America is a horrible place and anything you do would be justified. He says, if you believed that you could bring heaven on earth, what crime would you not commit and what lie would you not tell to do it? So that really kind of underscores how the left will lie, they will deceive, they will, they will do anything um, if it, the end justifies the means. So same with uh, Islam. We know that in Islam, Islam have taqiyya, basically, which is the um, Islamic-sanctioned method of lying, where you can lie for the purpose of advancing Islam. Now, the next one is is that both are working towards a future revolution. Both use civil liberty to destroy civil liberty. They use our freedoms to destroy our freedom. Both see Christianity as their primary enemy. We talked about that before. Both are vying for a majority to outnumber Christians. Now, the left are doing it through the universities, through the colleges. We talked about that, how they are brainwashing conservatives. Um, Whereas Islam is doing it through their population, you know, through the womb. In fact, it's jihad via the womb and also through immigration uh, as well. And, and, and this is why the left is so big on the immigration as well, because that's the other way how they're trying to outnumber um, the people who are constantly, who are, you know, keeping them out of power. Now, the other thing is, is that both accuse their opponents of doing the very thing that they do themselves. Both advocate dumbing down of the populace in order to control and manipulate them easily. Both indulge in historical revisionism. This is a big one. They reinterpret history to suit their narrative. Both have an expansionist philosophy in regard to other countries. And both hate nationalism and patriotism, uh, particularly of Muslims living in their Western host Nation. Now, there's a there's a whole bunch of others that I could go on with, um, but that just gives you a bit of an understanding that there is an incredible bond between both of them. And um, see, you know, Chad, I believe um, that the left. See, for the most part, Islam kind of sits back. And they let the left do all the heavy lifting. So the left is very, very, is very active in trying to destroy every last vestige of Christian morality and Christian laws and, um, and, and all those things. So Islam basically is letting the left do all the heavy lifting. They're just waiting back and they're just waiting for the ideal time for them to assert their, um, their, their control. This is exactly what we're seeing in Europe at the moment. In fact, what I think is very interesting is that the more left-wing a nation becomes, and think about what that actually means. It means that the more a nation has rebelled against God and God's laws and God's general and special revelation, 
when a nation becomes more extreme in their rebellion in, in regard to how much they embrace leftism, the more Islam will grow within that nation like an aggressive cancer. And I think that is, um, it's a sobering thing to behold. Um, and, and so we, we're seeing that happening in Europe at the, at the moment where the population of Muslims living in England at the moment is greater than the population of Wales, um, which is massive. So it's not if England will become a, a Muslim nation, it's when. The writing is on the wall. And the same goes with Sweden as well. See, Sweden boasted of itself being a humanitarian powerhouse in the 1970s and threw open their borders to, um, or, you know, to immigrants and to, uh, and, and the Muslims came flooding in because of they have their, um, their jihad, jihadist doctrine of al-Hijra, uh, which basically is Arabic for immigration, but it's a central plank within, within jihad. Um, in fact, um, Chad, what is interesting is that there's only two ways in which a Muslim can guarantee that they will have, that they will go to heaven. The first way is if they kill or are killed for the sake of Islam. If they kill in the name of Islam or they are killed in the name of Islam, that's how they are guaranteed. The other way that they can guarantee it is if they immigrate for the sake of Islam. If they leave their country and go somewhere else for the sake of Islam. This is what Al-Hijra is, and the Al-Hijra is so important to the Muslim that the Muslim calendar is actually based around it, okay? See, we have our uh, a Gregorian calendar, which basically we have BC and AD, which goes back to the birth of Christ, whereas the Muslim calendar goes back to when Muhammad did his famous um, migration from the, town, from the city of Mecca to the city of Medina, when he fled from the city of Mecca, where they say the Muslims will tell you that he was persecuted, he wasn't really persecuted. He was basically run out of town because he was being a, a troublemaker. And then he fled to Medina, where, um, yeah, uh, where he basically became a warlord and a politician. So um, that's where Al Hijra comes from, and it's an extremely important concept to the Muslim. So. Um, so this is why they are very, very big on, on immigration, and this is why Europe, I, I, I think Europe, um, within the next two decades, we will see the, the tipping of the scales. I mean, it, the scales have pretty much already been tipped. There's already, they've already re I think they're already quickly approaching the, the critical mass, but I think it's going to become irreversible in the years ahead. And it's just a matter of time before one of these European nations becomes an Islamic nation. And uh, that's a really worrying concern uh, because we saw what happened during the Iranian Revolution when the Alatollahs came to power in 1973. And again, Iran was very, very similar. Uh, this is um, when it was known as Persia. Persia was very similar to the liberal um, nations that we that we see in in Europe, so the uh, the um, Persia used to be very liberal in the sense that it was all about equality and inclusivity and tolerance and um, 
you know, all cultures are equal, and let's inv- let's invite everybody coming in, you know, because every, all cultures are equal, and man is inherently good, and so let's bring them all in. And so the our uh, Shiite Muslims said, "Thank you very much. We'd love to become a part of this society." And then, of course, you know the story: the Awatollahs came into power in 1973, and what happened to the the left-wing government. Well, by the way, the left-wing government was known as the Tudor Party, the Tudor Party. And they were so far left-wing that many of them, some of them even referred to themselves as communists. And what happened was is that when the Alatollahs came to power, um, one-third of the Tudors fled the country and went to exile. The other third of them were imprisoned and the other third of them were executed by the Alatollahs. So, and it's interesting because you hear a lot about the Stockholm Syndrome, which is all about how people identify with their killers and, and, and then agree and praise their their their, their hostage, their um, the hostage takers. We saw the same thing uh, happen with the, the members of the Tudor Party when the Alatollahs came to power. They were praising the Alatollahs. They said, you know, this is great for this country. It's wonderful. And uh, our new leaders are going to be great. And, you know, it was really eerie and extraordinary. But um, I fear for Europe because I I feel that Europe is going down the same path. And I feel it it very soon will be irreversible. And this is why I'm so passionate about America waking up as well before it's too late. Very good points, my friend, and um, I know that I learned a lot with you, how you brought uh, the past up to the evolution of what we're seeing with the uh, sexual culture, if you will, and also with the ideals that the left have that perfectly match Islam, and I believe the left will allow the Islamic doctrine, which, you know, we've seen this over the past several years uh, come into play more and more. It's been kind of in the forefront uh, of this, so I do believe that, yes, it's definitely a war on uh, the Christians and the believers, but also uh, they will allow certain uh, uh, anti-Semitism uh, language, etc., which we've seen uh, in the news, the political jihad, which uh, you hit on before, yep. that they're going to do it in a political way with the uh, universities, the education system, the you know the congresswomen that we've seen being very anti-Semitic. And uh, could you hit upon that, how uh, this match that you're talking about with the left and the Islam, how it's going to continue to involve and ultimately, with the political jihad, uh, we're all familiar with uh, the, it's called the squad with the ladies, uh, two of the Islamic ladies, the rhetoric that they've put out about Israel yep. uh, and things like that. Could you hit upon the anti-Semitism that we're going to see increase uh, towards not only Christians, but also the Jewish people? And how that plays with uh, replacement theology is the church blind right now. Uh, with uh, with some of the churches believing in replacement theology that will kind of sit on the sidelines uh, while this anti-Semitic uh, behavior happens. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. And let me just um, begin with a little bit of history because I believe that what we are experiencing at the moment is basically what I would call a third wave of anti-Semitism. Now to um pack what I mean when I say third wave anti-Semitism, I need to explain the first wave and the second wave. So the first wave of anti-Semitism was the old religious animus against Jews for rejecting the Messiah and 
their role in his crucifixion. So we saw this in the uh, in the 1800s and, be, and before that. Um, so, but here's the thing: there was a way out. Okay, there was a way for Jews to avoid this anti-Semitism, and this is what was by converting to Christianity. Okay, so you probably uh, have heard of how Jews were forced into converting to Christianity, um, and that was how they avoided this, how I would expl uh, explain as a first wave anti-Semitism. Then there came the second wave of anti-Semitism that we, we saw in the 20th century, in the, in the early 20th century, uh, and this second wave of anti-Semitism defines Jews not as religious, but as a race, racial group. Okay, so this is getting more to the core of who they are. And since their faults are biological rather than confessional, there was no way to avoid this anti-Semitism. And what I think it was really, really uh, tragic was when the, um, the SS um, troopers went from place to place um, looking for Jews, they would go to a, a Jewish household and they would say, um, are you Jewish? And what, what would happen was is that they, the, the men would say, well, we used to be Jewish, but we're not Jewish anymore. We're Germans. We are Germans. And the, the, the Gestapo would say, oh, is that right? Well, why don't you drop your pants? And forgive me for being crass, but this is what they said. This is what they did. And so the man, the Jewish man would drop his pants and they would see that he was circumcised. Then they would take him and his whole family and put them into, into the trucks and take them off to the concentration camps. So really, um, this second wave of anti-Semitism was really at the fact that the Jews were a racial group, uh, which is very distinct and different from the first wave. But then I want to talk about what we're experiencing now, which is more of like a third wave of anti-Semitism, and this is made up of an unholy, an unholy trinity, made up of right-wing anti-Semitism, left-wing anti-Semitism, and Islamic anti-Semitism. Okay. Now, by the way, I, I, I should say up front that when I say right-wing anti-Semitism, I don't... <laughs> I don't I don't believe that Hitler and the Nazis were actually right-wing per se in the way that we understand it today. I believe that if you, if anything, Hitler and the Nazis were alt-left. They were alt-left because they simply used a different brand of Marxism. Okay, they were still Marxists. Okay, but they used Marxism in the wrong way. See, a, a different way. So what Hitler did is that he took the same principle of Marxism, the, the, the oppressed versus the oppressor except he said that the German people were oppressed and that the oppressors were the Jews, okay? So he applied the same principle of Marxism, Marxism but he applied it ethnically, okay? So the Aryan, the German Aryans were the oppressed and they were being oppressed by the Jews and that's why we have to deal with the Jews, okay? This is a, a lot of this came out in mind camp, all right? So... Hitler was a leftist. He was. This is why Nazi is actually broken down into the National Socialists. They were socialists. Okay, so um, this is why I say that they. I call them alt leftists. Uh, another thing too, and I know that this is a bit of a digression, but I'll, I'll get back on track. Um, many of the Nazis were actually what uh, were called. They were actually called beefsteak Nazis. 
Now, what I mean by that is, is that many... See, what happened was there was a huge rivalry between the Nazis and the German Communist Party, okay? But what happened was is that the Nazis eventually got the upper hand and the Nazis got into power and the German Communist Party was left out in the cold. But what happened was is that many of the members of the German Communist Party, they simply switched sides. They simply jumped, they simply jumped camp. They, they left the Communist Party and they joined the Nazi Party because the ideological switch wasn't a, it wasn't a bridge too far for them. So they, they were nicknamed the beefsteak Nazis because they, they were brown on the outside. They had the brown shirts, but they were red in the center. See, with, with the, the beefsteak analogy, they were wearing the brown sh- shirts, but they, had, they were red in the center. In other words, yeah, exactly. So they were communists. This is what I mean when I say that Hitler and Nazism and the whole, um, and again, that's another whole topic which I can unpack maybe at another time and how, why we came to believe that the Nazis were right-wing uh, and, and also fascism. Why did we come to believe that fascism was right-wing? Because it was all twisted within American academia in the 1950s and uh, 1960s. In fact, they... The the, um, the leftists and main, in fact, the same people who I talked about earlier, Adorno, Eric Fromm, and Herbert Marcuse, were the very ones who worked hard on trying to get Americans to accept that the Nazis were right wing. So, and they were very successful. Um, now, that was a bit of a digression because um, I, I want to get back to what I was talking about in regard to the third wave of anti-Semitism, because this is what's made up of an unholy trinity, made up of what I would say alt left anti-Semitism, in other words, these people so-called on the right, left-wing anti-Semitism and Islamic anti-Semitism, okay? And these three elements of anti-Semitism are brewing together as a perfect storm, a perfect storm of Jewish persecution. So let me unpack this a bit more. So let's, let's talk about Okay, let's talk about this so-called anti-Semitism on the right, which really is alt-left. Europe is witnessing a resurgence of anti-Semitism among these nationalist groups, okay? Their anti-Semitism is different in the sense that they see Jews as evil conspirators in an agenda for global control. They blame the Jews for the rise of the left, okay? Now, by the way, Many of the members of the Frankfurt School were actually Jewish. Karl Marx was a Jew. Okay, Gorgi Lukacs was a Jew. Felix Wheel, the guy who founded the Frankfurt School, was a Jew. Max Horkheimer, the principal, was a Jew. Okay, so this is how, okay, they kind of twist this thing and how they say that, you know, they say, oh, you know, um, uh, Saul Alinsky, George Soros, all these guys are all Jewish. These guys are, you know, of the devil because these guys represent the left. Now, that's, that's a lie because there are just as many good guys who are fighting against the left, okay, such as your Ben Shapiro's and your Dennis Prager's and your David Horowitz's and your Alan Dershowitz's, you know, all these guys, even Dr. Michael Brown, um, you know, from ask, ask Dr. Brown. I mean, these guys, um, are, are, they're fighting against this. So um, anyway, so they blame the Jews for the rise of the left, the spread of cultural Marxism and the stranglehold of political correctness. 
They believe that the Jews control the banks, the Jews control Hollywood, control the media and dominate academia. Okay, then we then let's move on to the anti-Semitism on the left. Anti-Semitism has also become entrenched with within the political left under the guise of anti-Zionism. Now, similar to the alt left or the right, there are many on the left that see much of society plagued by evil capitalist Jews. Now, this is exactly Ilhan Omar. Uh, and uh, Rashid Tlaib, uh and also um, AOC, you know, the squad that we see, that the Democrats, the, the squad, they believe this. You know, Ilhan Omar said that the world is under the spell of Israel, is under the, the spell of the Jews. And so they see the evil capitalist Jews as the bourgeoisie class. Okay, this, gets, this is getting back into Marxism again. So, yet the anti-Semitism on the left is also fueled by their contempt for the ethnic nationalism that they see in the state of Israel. Okay, they hate the fact that the state of Israel is a Jewish state based on ethnic nationalism. So, the left despise that. Now, and then let's move on also, too, to anti-Semitism within Islam. Now, the Middle East is the most anti-Semitic region on Earth, where 93% of Palestinians hold anti-Semitic beliefs. And today, wherever Islam spreads, hatred of the Jews spreads. And in many ways, we are witnessing Islamic ideology take the place of Nazi ideology as back in the 19. 30s. But in many ways, Islam is far more dangerous than Nazi ideology because it justifies its hatred of the Jews as a religious duty. So let me, let me explain that. So 17% of the Medinan Quran contains anti-Jew hatred. In contrast, Mein Kampf, this is Hitler's book, the book that he wrote when he was in prison. And by the way, Mein Kampf in German means my struggle, and that's exactly what jihad means in Arabic. 7% of Mein Kampf contains anti-Jew hatred, where 17% of the Medinan Quran contains anti-Jew hatred. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Now, Islamic immigration has demonstrated to be the major catalyst of the resurgence of anti-Semitism. Now, the alt-left, or the so-called right, has become more and more anti-Semitic because they believe that the Jewish globalists are responsible in pushing for open borders and illegal Muslim immigration. Now, the political left has become more anti-Semitic as they fall over themselves to appease the Muslim community. In, in all aspects of their culture. Sorry, excuse me. So, and we saw this with Jeremy Corbyn, in the, uh, who was the leader of the, the British Labour Party. I mean, he was a, a very nasty character, extreme anti-Semitic. And again, these, the Leeds leftists, they fall over themselves to appease the Muslim community. And all aspects of their culture, including 
Jew hatred. Okay, so if the Muslims hate the Jews and the leftists are like, okay, well, we're going to be just like you because we love you so much and you're going to help us to, to destroy Christianity. So if you hate Jews, then we'll hate Jews too. That basically, in a nutshell, um, is where that is at. And this is why anti-Semitism is, is making a huge comeback. Anti-Semitism is roaring back to life now. A global survey, survey by the ADL revealed that almost half the world does not know that the Holocaust happened. And it su suggests that over a one billion people are anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitism is spilling over onto college campuses where it's a major, major issue. And this is what prompted uh, President Trump to defund colleges that are actually encouraging this anti-Semitism. And we're also seeing the same thing here in Australia as well. And anti-Semitism is becoming institutionalized in many political parties, including the American Democrats. The American Democratic Party is becoming more and more anti-Israel and anti-Jew. We saw the, uh, the mayor of New York, uh, just come out just recently and uh, de Blasio and basically lashed the Jews in regard to their desire to want to gather together in synagogues, basically rebuked them and yet he kissed up to, um, to Islam um, in regard to Ramadan. So it's just incredible times that, that we are living in, Chad, just extraordinary times. Absolutely. Uh, when you hit on some great points, and I love the way that you kind of circled the wagon with the Marxism and Islam, the left. I mean, it was a beautiful uh, tie-in, and that's where we are. That's what we're seeing. Uh, and when you look at Europe, like you've mentioned before, that old ghost is rising again. And it's because, in my opinion, uh, the primary reason is because of the Islamic invasion, as you know, uh, 2014, 2015, uh, coming from uh, the Middle East because all of the civil unrest and the civil, uh, Syrian civil war, etc. And uh, so we're seeing this Islamic invasion, and Europe will never be the same. Like you said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And with that comes this old ghost rising, uh, if you will, from the Hitler days, and also with the Islamic doctrine, like you've mentioned. And now we're seeing it, you know, come to America. We're seeing uh, America. You look at London. London's got a London mayor who is a radical. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he is a radical and supports all of the yeah, radical is. Islam. And then you go to America and you see the infiltration, like you've mentioned, of the education system. You see the infiltration of the U.S. government. I mean, could we have ever thought that, We've had four congresswomen that would just stand up and be anti-Semitic right out in the open. Uh, you know, two of them are uh, Islamic, you know, Muslim. And I want to make a difference with the people who are listening. Uh, we're about, we're against the doctrine of Islam. We love the Muslim people, uh, and they're just yes. deceived. We love the Muslim people, but and Daniel does as well. But we have a, we're against the doctrine of Islam you know, the evil of Islam. So I want to make that distinction uh, with the listeners. But uh, can you expound upon uh, when we see the U.S. government, the infiltration of the Islamic doctrine? You mentioned the mayor of New York bowing down to it. Uh, and I've seen, um, I wrote a book called God's Fishermen, Satan's Hunters, where I speak about this Islamic invasion uh, of America with the open borders, with the education system. They're doing a political jihad now. And when we see, when we look at the votes, of the last fall, 
or, or two years ago, we're seeing this extreme election of, of Muslim people in our nation. I'm not saying all of them are radicals, but when we look at the ones that are prominent right now, and you've mentioned the squad, and when we look at Minnesota, we look at Michigan, we look at the rhetoric that's coming out of their mouth, and we look at even when we look back at the Muslim Brotherhood, the infiltration they've had, uh, Arabia, the infiltration they've had here. Could you expound on that and how it's caused America to kind of uh, bow down, if you will, to uh, Islam? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I wrote an article on my Israel Islam and in Times website called Subversion, How a Change of Tactic Helped the Left and Islam Capture the West. And so basically I explain how Islam's initial tactic of military confrontation with the West came to a grinding halt at the gates of Vienna in 1683. And had the Muslim armies prevail, they stood to overrun Christian Europe and the entire continent would have become part of the Muslim Ottoman Empire. However, the emergence of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood under the leadership of Hassan al-Banna in 1922 would breathe new life into the ambitions of Islam to dominate the West. Uh, acknowledging their inability to confront the West via military means, they sought a change of strategy which would, which would prove to be nothing short of brilliant. And this is really, um, Islam basically was uh, borrowing um, from the uh, Marxist ideology. Um, they saw the, 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 the scheming of, well, they saw the, what's the word I look for? Strategy. They saw the strategy of Antonio Gramsci, and I thought, well, if that's going to work for them, it can work for us. So the Muslim Brotherhood laid out a plan of infiltrating the West from within via what can be described as cultural jihad. Now, we've talked previously about cultural Marxism, this is cultural jihad. And in an official document that was uncovered by federal investigators in 2004, the Muslim Brotherhood's strategic goals for North America was chillingly outlined from a meeting held by the organization in 1991. And here is a short excerpt. It says, the process of settlement is a civilization jihadist process with all the word means. The Ikhwan Muslim Brotherhood, that's in brackets, Muslim Brotherhood, must understand that their work in America is kind of a grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers. Incredible, isn't it? That is incredible. And actually, I have the same quote in my book that you read, and I actually was going to mention that. So I'm so happy uh, that you uh, brought that quote up. And uh, could you expound upon when we see uh, the leaders, you know, in, um, you know, the Huma Abedin and some of these people that are tied into the Muslim Brotherhood that's been in our government and things like that. And we all know when, if you pay attention, but could you expound on that uh, as well with the uh, political leaders, what you're seeing uh, with the American government? We've mentioned the squad, uh, and it's amazing that we're, we've even elected these folks. So the question is, is if we're electing these people in certain states, 
that says a lot for the people of the state and how they view uh, the certain uh, viewpoints of the radical left, of the Muslim yep. uh, doctrine as well. Could you expound upon that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, the Muslim Brotherhood is um, is basically the arm of uh, of cultural jihad um, for for Islam, and it is extremely effective. In fact, I believe I think Chad that Obama had at least seven members of the Muslim Brotherhood within his administration, yeah. uh, which is massive, absolutely. It, that's bone chilling when you consider the um, when you consider the agenda uh, and the mission of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think um, Trump really needs to move and, and to declare the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization because that's exactly what they are. They are their goal is to is is America's demise. It's to basically transform America from a Christian nation to an Islamic nation, and so. Um, basically, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, they will not stop until they completely dominate and, and destroy America. And what's interesting is, is that um, Islam and the left, they feed off each other's strategies. Now, this is exactly as I mentioned before, how the Muslim Brotherhood took a leaf out of the communists' book and they applied their subversion that they're that they applied their strategy of um, destroying America from within. Um, you know, one of the other tactics that they stole from the left was the whole um, re-engineering of words to, uh, you know, they saw how successful the left were with the invention of the word homophobia. Now, the word homophobia was extremely effective because it shut down all opposition and dissent. Uh, it shut down anyone who spoke out against homosexuality as a hater, as a bigot, um, as, a, um, as a stupid, backward uh, person that doesn't, you know, that, that, uh, that doesn't understand anything, you know. So basically, they... They applied the same strategy, and it was the Muslim Brotherhood. It was fact, actually a think tank uh, that was run by the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, this was in the 90s, and they basically um, took a leap and with the and they came up with the word Islamophobia. They invented the word Islamophobia and they thought that it would be a brilliant strategy because they saw how effective homophobia was. So they thought, well, if they can do that and they can, if they can become successful with that, then we're going to do the same thing. So it started in the think tank, the Muslim Brotherhood think tank in the 1990s, and they kept saying it, they kept putting it in as much public. Um, uh, publicity um, events as they possibly could, used it as much as they po possibly could in different um, PR stunts, and eventually their PR eventually prevailed. And now Islamophobia is now in the mainstream, and they can they use it as a incredible um, tool 
to their advantage to shut down dissent. So if anyone speaks out against Islam, um, they are immediately shut down as being Islamophobic. And of course, there is no there is no objective grounding, legitimate grounding for that word whatsoever. It's uh, it's a completely engineered word they invented out of nothing, out of thin air, just as the um, uh, as the the left did with homo- with homophobia. But that just gives you a bit of an idea of how the left and how Islam they feed off each other and how they borrow tactics from each other. Um, but as I mentioned, um, Chad, that that what we saw happen in Iran, whereas the leftists in Iran had this utopian vision of unicorns galloping over rainbows and how they basically believed (laughs) that they would walk arm in arm with the Muslims and the Muslims will be happy and the leftists will be happy, the Christians are vanquished they won the day. They've got their utopia. Okay, but here's the thing. They are extremely naive in believing that because Islam is playing to win. They're playing the long game. Okay. See, where, where we use a watch, they use a calendar. They are playing the long game. They are prepared to wait not just years but decades for their victory. Very this is exactly yeah. what they're doing. This is exactly what they're doing in Europe. And this is exactly what they want to do in America. And and here's the thing. Um, the left is... The only way that I can describe the left at the moment in regard to what they're doing, they are a drunk... Um, they're basically, you know... And look, I guess we, we might think differently, I guess, in regard to our conclusion in, in regard to what we understand Revelation 17 to, to mean. For me personally, um, I think definitely that the beast that we see there is definitely Islam. Um, yet I, th- I, be- I, I differ from a lot of my colleagues, my eschatological colleagues, um, where I tend to think that the the what we see in Revelation 17, we see this picture of a drunk prostitute uh, is completely inebriated and she's riding this beast completely oblivious that this beast is eventually going to turn on her and kill her. And we read that sobering verse in Revelation 17 where it says that the beast will hate the prostitute, will bring her to her ruin, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. I believe that is the, you know, and this is, I don't mean to come across as a killjoy or a wet blanket um, because I love Western culture and I especially love America and I love the American people. But I believe that um, America is involved in a seductive dance. How would I say flirtation is probably a better word. They are flirting with a beast that is going to destroy her that is going to kill her. And um, the left at the moment is basically playing Russian roulette. Uh, It's flirting with Islam, thinking that Islam is going to help it to destroy Christianity, in which it will, but they don't see what's going to happen in the end. And this is exactly what happened in Iran with the Tudor party. One third went into exile, one third uh, were imprisoned, and the other third were killed. 
So I believe that America really needs to wake up and to sense this intimate, clear and present danger in Islam before it's too late. I agree with you. Uh, living in America, you know, we can definitely, or I can definitely, and all the people that we network with, we can definitely see that there's danger coming. Uh, it's been coming for a long time. Again, you mentioned the uh, political jihad, the cultural jihad, if you will. Uh, they're very patient. They're going to try to infiltrate. They can't come over here and start cutting off people's heads. You know, that's not going to work. Uh, in America yeah. at this moment. Uh, they have to do it another way, political jihad, cultural jihad, really kind of almost yep. give up some of their uh, convictions with homosexuality, et cetera, for the left to come on board with them, and then the left will give up some of their convictions uh, with, you know, you're seeing in even these uh, representatives in the House come out with these anti-Semitic uh, statements about Israel and Palestine, et cetera, so you're seeing this, yep. you know, the convergence, like you're mentioning, with the left and also also Islam, and you're seeing it prevalent in Michigan, in Minnesota, and in other uh, states as well. I know we see it in Shelby, Shelbyville here in Tennessee, right uh, down from Nashville, about an hour and a half from Nashville. You're seeing this Islamic invasion, this political and also uh, cultural jihad that we're seeing. So yes, America's definitely at the crossroads with. Uh, Islam, and when you look at the people who are elected, I've mentioned this before uh, in the last election, it is, it's just incredible how many uh, of them were Muslim. And again, this is not against the Muslim people. My question would be how many of those are radicals, you know, that have these views yeah. that we're seeing uh, with, the, with the squad, et cetera, that we're seeing. So I think it's important, and that brings us to the last point. I know you have another um, interview to do here uh, here shortly. So that brings us to the last point I would like for you to uh, tie in. How do you see uh, this working with replacement theology in the church? You know, is the church asleep when it comes to the what we've mentioned, political, cultural jihad with Islam? Are we asleep with the left, uh, so to speak, in, in some of the churches that do preach the replacement theology? And for the listeners, replacement theology is basically, in summary, saying that the church, the Gentile church, has replaced uh, Israel in the covenants and the blessings, and that Israel gets all of the curses, etc. So, could you expand on that uh, before we end? Yeah, that's a great point, and I'm glad you raised it because I think this is a a, a, a really pertinent way in which we can round everything off that we've been talking about. Um, and you know, it's I think one of the greatest prophets that we have ever had is actually the prophet of history. Uh, history tends to be a great prophet because many of the principles that we find in the Word of God are actually outworked in history. And we can use, in fact, I'm writing a book at the moment called The Politics of the Last Days. And a lot of what we saw happen in history, we saw the biblical principles um, um, outworked in history. And learning from history, we can pretty much have a clear understanding where where things are heading in the future, uh, especially in regard to eschatology. Um, I think that we, we've seen a, a bunch of different glimpses and foretastes and foreshadowings from history. Uh, and I believe that God deliberately does this. I think God deliberately gives us foretastes. He gives us foreshadowings. He gives us what I would say are partial fulfillments to help us to understand that there is a greater fulfillment that's coming. So I believe that um, with what we saw happen in World War One, and what we saw happen in World War Two, 
Uh, what I would say are blueprints in what we are to expect for the great war that is that is is, is going to come. Um, you know, what I think is fascinating is is that I believe, Chad, that that what we saw happen with the Ottoman Empire in World War One, and especially with the with the um, genocide of of Christians, with the um, Armenian Christians that were killed, the millions of Christians that were killed by the Ottoman Empire. And then with what we saw with what the Nazis did with the Jews, and by the way, the Nazis, again, they were a left wing. They were radicals. They were radical Marxists, okay? They were, and this is what we're seeing happening in our society right now. Uh, okay, I believe World War One and World War Two. if you take the blueprint from World War One and the blueprint from World War Two, and you place them over... Um, you place them on top of each other, you get a bit of an idea of what we are to expect with the great war that is to come, uh, the great uh, the the time of sorrows that is to come. Um, I think uh, we can. Uh, there is a lot to learn for what uh, for us to learn from what we saw happen in World War One and World War Two. Now, World War Two was fascinating because the Church in Germany could have had an opportunity to protect the Jews living among them, but they failed. And for the most part, the church in Germany was asleep and ineffective because it had fallen for the aberrant and destructive teaching called replacement theology. It is a absolutely demonic um, theology that comes from the pit of hell. In fact, I remember... Ten years ago, Chad, it was exactly ten. Well, not exactly ten years ago, but ten years ago, I was in Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, and I remember the very first exhibit as I walked in to the museum. And basically, the first exhibit laid the blame for the Holocaust squarely at the feet of the church, and that was really a punch in the gut from the very. Uh, from the first moment you walk in, I mean, it's it's an emotionally exhausting um, museum, and by the time you get to it, you're pretty much emotionally um, shattered. But that was probably the thing that really knocked the wind out of my soul when I saw that. But here's the thing: we got to ask what it must have been like for the the Jewish people for them to come to such a conclusion. And for many of the Jews who were marched off the concentration camps, they walked past church after church after church on every street corner. And will the church allow that to happen next time? That really is the burning question. Because what happened in Nazi Germany was, an, what I would say is like an apocalyptic dress rehearsal of what the Jews will face in the future. The church has a golden opportunity to learn the lessons from Nazi Germany and to rise to the occasion and right its wrongs. Yet the church is in a precarious position to prevent such a calamity from happening again as so much of the church is asleep. Now let me read to you this quote, and this is a quote by Art Katz. I I believe that you're probably familiar with Art Katz, Chad? Yes. Yeah, so Art Katz said this, and he said this in Germany, by the way. He said this in Germany in 1986. He said, World War II may be over and Nazism may be defeated as a political and military entity, but the spirit powers that brought Nazism into being 
to destroy a nation and almost the entire civil world, those powers yet rule over the earth waiting for their next opportunity to insert themselves into the affairs of men while the church sleeps. Wow. That is exactly where we are, my friend. I totally believe it, and you're seeing it, and it goes back into that replacement theology. I think some uh, put even uh, Martin Luther and some of those folks back then with these anti-Semitic uh, statements yep. that you can find online. It, it was really horrible. I think you know, I told someone that I could show you a quote without the name on it, and you would think it was Hitler, but it was actually Martin Luther who said it. Martin you know, Luther. Yeah, and you know the quotes uh, better than anyone. So uh, we are at that junction, and, and what I see, and people aren't familiar with the everlasting covenants. You know, they're not familiar. They're, they're not being taught, you know, in the church anymore, you know, and it goes back into that yep. replacement theology mindset that you're having right now. So I just wonder, we are at the crossroads at the church at where you're saying right now with the political and cultural jihad, and we're just trying to uh, educate people to understand the covenants, to understand their everlasting, because more so you're seeing today is that uh, anti-Semitic, and I don't even know if people really realize uh, how uh, their church is anti-Semitic because it's not out in the open. It's just not being taught that the promises, the covenants are for Israel, and we're all grafted into those uh, Gentile believer, and that that's just not being uh, taught. I know uh, you speak about it, and the people we network speak about it, but the church itself, the four walls, we're seeing a big, you know, they're not really paying attention to what's going on with Islam. And you just wonder, are there going to be the churches that, again, when people walk by, you know, to death or whatever it may be, to be turned, turned, turned away, look at the other side of the coin, if you will? Yep. 100%. Now, here's the thing, Chad, what I, th I think is interesting, and if you don't, I hope you don't mind if I've got to... Um, how much time extra do I have? Keep on going. We're okay. Oh, we're okay? Okay. Because I think it's it's really important for us to understand this. See, we talked um, previously about um, why um, the Jews are hated so, just in regard to uh, anti-Semitism, and we talked about the first wave of anti-Semitism, the second wave, and the third wave of anti-Semitism. Um, but... The thing is, and this is what makes anti-Semitism different from every kind of form of racism. Um, and by the way, there is no... Anti-Semitism is unique in the sense that there is actually a word for a particular hatred of a particular race, whereas there is no other word to describe the hatred of any other race. For example, there's no word to describe the hatred of Australians. There's no word... I mean, how could you hate me anyway? <laughs> but there's no word... There's no, there's no word... There's no word to uh, explain hatred of Americans. There's no word to explain hatred of, of, uh, of Italians, for example, or Jamaicans or Japanese. See, there's only a word for one... of hatred toward one group of people, and that's the word anti-Semitism, which I think is interesting. But anti-Semitism is also very different as well. And by the way, I want to read you an excerpt from um, a book by Dinesh Souza called The Big Lie, which is a great book and I highly recommend it. But he talks about this German historian, Gott Ali, uh, and he says about this conclusion that he came to. It says this, So German historian Gott Ali reaches a surprising conclusion. Modern anti-Semitism is rooted not in a perception of Jewish inferiority, but in a perception of Jewish success. 
the Jews are hated because they are more hardworking, more creative, better educated, and richer than other Germans. In other words, anti-Semitism is anchored in the worst of the seven deadly sins, namely envy. Normally, racism involves looking down on people who are seen as inferior, but Ali shows that anti-Semitism involves looking down on people who are... Um, uh, who are, sorry, anti-Semitism involves looking down on people who are sinners and fear. But Ali shows that, sorry, shows that anti-Semitism involves looking up at the Jews and despising them for their achievements. Now, isn't that interesting? I think that is... Go ahead. I think that's fascinating because anti-Semitism is based on envy because of their success. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Amen. When God said that he would bless this Abraham's seed, bless Abraham's descendants, God said that he would surely bless and bless Abraham and his descendants and that he would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. I think that's amazing because... What anti-Semitism really means is is that for those of us who understand the truth of God, we understand what Paul was saying in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We understand what Paul meant when he said, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Yes, much in every way. See, we understand that. And so we understand that the Jewish people, that the blessing that God gave to Abraham and his descendants still rests on the Jewish people to this day. Okay, mm-hmm. That blessing is still with them, and this is why they are so successful, because of the blessing. And, um, and the thing is, and this is what's fascinating, Chad, the Jewish people are blessed to be a blessing, and they are empowered to be successful at whatever they do, irrespective of whether that thing is for good or for evil. So I'll repeat that again. The Jewish people have been blessed and they have been empowered to do whatever they put their hand to, whether it be for good or for evil. So this is why the Jewish people are not only very successful um, in inventions and in creativity, uh, with what you know, I mean, just look at the, the disproportionate amount of Jewish people who are Nobel laureates and Nobel Prize winners. Look at people like Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein and all these people who reshaped the Western world as we know it today. I mean, the Jewish people have a, had an incredible impact on the way that we do life from the fact from our tomatoes, or you guys call them tomatoes. You know, hydroponics technology to to um, to the USB flash drives. That was an Israeli invention. To you know, to even now where they they believe that they've come that they've actually come up with a vaccine for the coronavirus. Okay, so these people are extraordinary, extraordinarily blessed, but. Not only are they very good at being successful for good, they're also good at, they also are very successful at being evil. And this is why people like Karl Marx, 
um, people like um, uh, Gorgia Lukacs, okay, all the academics at the Franklin School, Felix Will, uh, Horkheimer from Adorno, Herbert Mercuse, who was the architect of the sexual revolution, okay, which basically swept the world. I mean, the sexual revolution impacted Australia here as well. We're still reeling from the effects of the sexual revolution here. Um, and, and not just those guys, but Saul Alinsky, who became the mentor of Hillary Clinton, Saul Alinsky, who wrote 12 Rules for Radicals, which in the epitaph he dedicated to Lucifer, um, Saul Alinsky, and then we have George Soros, who was perhaps the biggest troublemaker in the world, financing all these front groups that are trying to, um, which is basically um, trying to bring down uh, Trump and his administration and to destroy conservative, conservativism within America. And Soros knows that if he can do it in America, if he can bring America down, he's basically got the world at his mercy. So here's the thing, and this is the, such an incredible dichotomy, such an incredible paradox, that the Jewish people could have used the blessing to use for good, but instead they used it for evil. And they, as a result, the world is heading into slavery as a, as a result. And, you know, and, and this is where I want to get it back to anti-Semitism and replacement theology. Because judgment begins with the house of God. And here's the thing, you know, if people, if the Bible is not true, if the blessing that God gave to Abraham no longer um, is is uh, is validated, if it's no longer um, what's the word I'm looking for, if if Abraham's blessing to Abraham and his descendants has been cancelled, okay, then people who believe in replacement theology have to ask themselves, well, why are these Jewish people so successful? It can't be because God has blessed them, because God's rejected them. They're not his people anymore. So why is it that they, are, that they are so good at what they do? Why is it that they are such a shining light for democracy in Israel? Why is it that they are, that they are, so many of them are Nobel Prize laureates, so many of them are very good business people and the heads of companies and things like that? Why is it? It can't be because God has blessed them. It must be because these people are evil. It must be because these people are inherently evil and these people are the cause of all the world's problems. Can you see where, they, where this demonic, depraved, insidious line of thinking is going? That's exactly correct. Because if you're not familiar with the Abrahamic Covenant or Genesis 12, like you've mentioned, then, you know, you're going to start to look at it like you've just mentioned, you know, this demonic uh, outlook on the Jewish people. And, you know, basically I tell people if you're, uh, whether directly or indirectly, if you believe in replacement theology, you're calling God a liar. You know, that's plain and simple. Exactly. It's an everlasting uh, promise and as we both know everlasting I believe he meant everlasting uh, so and when we look at the world today but you make great points and you know I tell people that you can make the point that 
America has been so blessed because after the Spanish Inquisition with with all the Catholicism, persecution, etc., and then we can make the case, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, that America has been so blessed because of Genesis 12, and it hasn't been the safest refuge up to this point, uh, and it's getting kind of sketchy going forward with what we're talking about today with Islam and the left. Uh, but you can make the case that America has been so successful because we do inhabit the second largest Jewish population. Uh, so I'm with yes. you on those points. And then you have this convergence of the left and the radicals of Islam, and then you have this perfect storm coming up where you're seeing, like you've mentioned before, the anti-Semitism and then the replacement theology churches that kind of will turn that blind eye, if you will, because they believe they are, uh, quote-unquote, the, the cursed people, not the blessed people. So, yes. Do you have anything as to say? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, as, as the saying goes, those who do not learn from history will repeat history. You know, will, will history repeats because nobody learns from history, and uh, and this is what we we're, we're going to see see happening in these last days, and it's it's very very sobering uh, because a lot of the things that we saw happen in history, for example. Um, we we read that very sobering scripture in Zechariah, I believe Zechariah, I believe thirteen, where it says that two thirds in the land will be cut off, and one third will remain, and that third I will bring into the fire, and um, I will I will bring through the fire, and they will say the Lord is our God, and I will say they are my people. So that's a bit of a paraphrase, and what I'm trying to say off the top of my head. But what is interesting, uh, Chad, is that in the 1920s and early 1930s, there were 9 million Jews living in Europe. 9 million Jews. And after Hitler did what he did, and by the way, when you kind of consider the length of time of the Holocaust, it's roughly about three and a half years, which I think is chilling. Very but here's the thing. Yeah, w what I think is interesting is that Hitler managed to wipe out two-thirds of the Jews living in Europe. Wow. Exactly two-thirds. Uh, six million Jews, including 1.5 million children. Um, th that is astonishing. Now, this is how I know, and this is why I'm a big believer in pattern prophecy. Uh, in regard to, and when I say pattern prophecy, I'm referring to that there are glimpses and foretastes and foreshadowings that are pointing towards a final conclusion, a final um, uh, greater fulfillment, a final fulfillment. So we know that it was a partial fulfillment because not all of the details um, that the prophet Zechariah said actually happened, and there were two big ones. First of all, the prophet Zechariah says, Haaretz, in the land, two-thirds in the land will be cut off. You know, actually, when you see Haaretz, it's in almost all cases of referring to the land of Israel. So that didn't happen in the land of Israel. It happened in Europe. Um, but the next thing that it says, that we, how we know that it's a, it's a partial fulfillment, is that he says that they will say to me, the Lord is our God, and I will say to them, and they are my people. So 
So we know that God, the second half is right. We know that God says that they are his people, but did they say that the Lord is our God? Well, the answer to that is no. Um, and to this day, the Jewish people, the majority of them, don't say that the Lord is our God. However, that will change. What did Jesus say? You will not see me again until you say, Baruch HaBab Hashem Adonai, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe the time will come when they will say the Lord is our God. And that's when that prophecy will be fulfilled. And you know what's really sobering is that within Islam there is a infamous hadith. And this is all part and parcel of Islamic eschatology. So the Muslims, when they quote this, they are basically believing that this is what's going to happen in the last days, uh, from their perspective, from their understanding of eschatology. So, and the hadith is this. In the last days, the slaughter will be that great. Sorry, I should qualify that this, the context of this hadith is actually referring to the land of Israel. Okay, so it says, it says in the last days, the slaughter will be that great that the rocks in the trees will cry out and say, O Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. And so they quote that to taunt the Jewish people living in Israel. And, uh, and this is why, Has this is why um, the leader of Hezbollah has said, in fact, it's not just him who said it, there was also a Jordanian imam who also said the same thing. But they say that we can't wait. We look forward until all the Jews um, gather together in Israel from all over the world because then we won't have to hunt them all over the world to kill them. We can, all, we can just kill them all in one place. So it, it, it's really sobering. And again, um, I'm a very optimistic, light-hearted kind of guy. But this is the truth of what we're dealing with in regard to the time of Jacob's trouble which I believe is not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. There is a time of trouble coming for Jacob, but he will be delivered out of it. And um, I believe that this will happen within the land of Israel, just as the prophet Zechariah says. Two-thirds in the land will be cut off. And the other observation that I get from that, Chad, is we often ask the question, will... Israel be saved in the way that us Christians understand it in terms of soteriology? Or do we understand it in the way that the Old Testament refers to the term saved in the terms of being spared? Okay, the righteous will be saved by faith. And, you know, that term, when you say saved in the Old Testament, it's usually saying that they will be spared. Okay, so what is interesting if that's true, if that theory is true, then one-third will be in the land when Jesus comes back and they won't necessarily come to, to a national salvation until, until Jesus comes back. Okay. But you can just imagine what they will be thinking once they see the sky light up and they see this Messiah come and destroy the enemies of Israel. You can just imagine. It's like... Finally, our Messiah has come. Here he is, and we have proven the Christians to be wrong. 
the Christians were wrong and we were right. Okay, it wasn't this Jesus guy who who was a suffering servant. That was a lo- that's a load of rubbish. They will say, no, we have finally got our Zechariah fourteen conquering king. Here is our Messiah. You know, you can just imagine this is what they would be saying. But here's the thing. Um, and now I believe you. I, I believe that you wrote a book on the feast on the, these feasts in regards to the feast of the fall, Chad. Uh, I, yeah, I haven't re- written a book on it. It's in uh, one of my books, very briefly. But I do you know videos and things like that on them when they come around. Yes, but what I think is interesting because when you look at from Yom Kippur on the first of Tishri, and then there's ten days. Uh, yeah, which Jews call Yamin Noraim, the days of awe, which they refer to repentance. But I believe when Jesus appears, it'll mean completely. It'll be a, a completely different awe, per se. But when you come to Yom Kippur, that is the day in which Jesus basically appears before all Israel. All Israel are gathered before him, and he removes the sin of a nation in one day. And I believe that the Jewish people will come before King Yeshua. They'll come before Jesus in the same way, in in a similar way, I should say, to when Joseph's brothers were assembled before Joseph when they came before him to to uh, to buy grain. To buy grain, they went to down to Egypt to buy grain, and they appeared before Joseph. And uh, then you find one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible where it says, and, th- and when Joseph saw his brothers, and then Joseph remembered his dreams. So now the thing is, is that Joseph's brothers, when they looked at Joseph, they didn't recognize him. They didn't realize who he was. When they looked at, when they looked at what they thought was an, an Egyptian ruler, in fact, what I think is interesting, when they looked at, Joseph, what they saw was a Gentile idol, which is exactly what the Jewish people think about Jesus today. That when they think about Jesus, they think Jesus is a Gentile idol. And that's what Joseph's brothers saw when they when they looked up and they saw Joseph, they thought that he was a Gentile idol. But the thing was is that Joseph knew. Remember when it says in John chapter 1 that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. So we know that that was the case when he came in the first coming, but it will be initially when he appears in his second coming the same case. He will, uh, the, the Jewish people will come before him and they will say, yes, this is our Messiah, this is fantastic, this is great news. But Jesus, in the same way that Joseph couldn't hide his identity from his brothers any longer, I believe Yeshua will not be able to hide his identity to his people any longer. And he will say, I am Yeshua, your brother. And Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's a beautiful it, it, tie-in, isn't it, with uh, the Joseph uh, prototype. And if I remember correctly, it was Judah who repented. So when Judah, when the Jews repent this time, just like you said, he will not be able to contain himself. He will reveal uh, himself to them, just like you said, and it almost reminds me of yep. the, the Moses having the veil on his face, you know, and then that veil will be taken off, and they will say what you're saying with Baruch Abba Shemite and I, and all of these wonderful things, yes. which goes back into the covenants, right? So, Yes, and remember, and you know how we talked about pattern prophecy, how there are foreshadowings 
partial fulfillments and then greater fulfillments? Well, we all know that when Jesus was on the cross, I think it was Matthew, it might have been Matthew, but he quoted Zechariah 12 where it says, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. Okay, remember how it was quoted of Jesus in the Gospels with Jesus on the cross? Okay, but it was a partial fulfillment. Okay, why? Because in the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah says all Israel will say that. All Israel will mourn. But that didn't happen with Jesus at the cross. Okay, but when Jesus presents all of Israel before him and he reveals his identity to him, he says, I am Yeshua, your brother. All Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. Amen. Amen. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's such a beautiful, beautiful tie-in with, uh, the, like you said, this patent prophecy. You know, I'm a big believer in that uh, for sure. Just like Solomon says, what has been is what will be. What has been done will be done. There's nothing new under yep. the sun. We know what the prophet Isaiah says. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Yes. Not yet fulfilled, totally fulfilled, like you're saying. So we're huge believers in that, and that goes back into the covenants not being fulfilled, the Abrahamic, Davidic, new covenant at the moment. And But he's going to do this, and he's going to reveal himself. And what a beautiful time. I'm glad you mentioned that. Friends, we're with a special guest, Daniel Seckham, discussing the relationship between America's left and Islam and how it affects eschatology. It's a very important uh, topic that Daniel has brought to the forefront today with the historical tie-ins of what we're seeing, this historical evolution of Marxism, how it correlates to Islam and the left's diabolical plans uh, to overtake America if we do not wake up. We are at the crossroads. Uh, Daniel has his points on this. And uh, Daniel, how can, they, how can the audience reach you, uh, website, email? Uh, how can they uh, get a hold of you? Well, I would encourage them to go to IsraelIslamAndEndTimes.com. That's IsraelIslamAndEndTimes.com. And while they are there, they can click on the link um, to get my book, which is called The Politics of the Last Days. Um, there's a link at the very top of the website where they can find it, or they can just simply click on any article on an article and down in the footer there would be a sign up for them to actually put their email address and to submit it and they will be notified as soon as my book becomes available which I'm hoping will be later on in, in the year. Um, now I also run another website called culturewarresource.com which is different from Israel Islam and End Times. Uh, Culture War Resource focuses more on what's going on in, in regard to the left and with cultural Marxism and with the whole LGBT and the whole um, abortion debate and all that kind of stuff and our threats to freedom, threats to our freedom of speech and all that kind of thing, um, that is on culturewarresource.com. And I've, I've got a, a personal uh, website where I blog from time to time and that's just uh, danielsecond.com, but I don't update that all very often. But those are the main ways that they can get a hold of me. Also, my Facebook page, Israel Islam and then Times on Facebook. Uh, if they could like that, um, I, I tend to post a fair bit of stuff there as well. That's great. Well, I would definitely encourage everybody to keep up with uh, your articles, your videos. I know you're a special guest on many podcasts and videos, etc. And I would definitely encourage people to keep up with your work. You're very knowledgeable of how these historical tie-ins 
and how these things are starting, these patterns are starting to come around again and uh, to Europe, to America, and really to the entire world with the Islamic threat. So uh, I would encourage everybody to keep up with you, to obviously buy your book and support you. And uh, we really appreciate your time uh, with us today. We'll definitely do it again. There's there's so much more to speak of uh, on this topic that we're speaking of today. So we'll definitely uh, have another episode for sure and on further down the line as we continue uh, the road race to the Messiah's second coming event. So, my friend, we really appreciate you. Stay safe. God bless you very much. Uh, friends, uh, this has been uh, a great podcast, a very informative. Uh, we hope you've gathered a lot of information, a lot of things to pray about, a lot of things to understand about uh, replacement theology and how it's affecting uh, America and also the Islamic and also the left uh, diabolical doctrines that we're all uh, facing at this moment. So we hope you pray into this and we hope you join us uh, on this journey as we fight for the cause of the true gospel uh, of the kingdom. Again, my name is Chadwick Harvey and you have reached the final threshold.